Hello, Charlie Gladstone here. Thank you very much indeed for downloading edition five of my Mavericks podcast. Um, I'd like to think I'm getting a little bit more professional at this stuff. Today's conversation is with Valentine Warner. Um, Val has been a terrific supporter of our festival, The Good Life Experience, and will be returning for the third time this summer, 2017, to cook over a campfire. This is a really interesting conversation, I think. Um, Val is a significant um, figure in the world of wild food, but also something of a polymath, being not only a chef, but a fisherman, a gin mogul, portrait painter, an educationalist, and a passionate outdoors man. We had a wonderful chat and could have no doubt gone on for much longer, um, but we covered a lot of subjects, um, as you will hear. Anyway, without further ado, I think I'll just get on with the podcast and um, thank Valentine for coming to talk to me and uh, just mention that I don't have any sponsors, unlike more professional and bigger podcasts. But if I was sponsored, um, it would definitely be by The Good Life Experience, which is our festival that um, you can find out about at thegoodlifeexperience.co.uk or indeed by Peddler's Vintage Marketplace, which is my um, online vintage marketplace. Yeah, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Anyway, here's my chat with Val. Let's talk about music. So you're, you, like me, are a massive music fan. Yeah. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and buy your record after this because I've got an idea, but I wasn't sure whether we're I should gonna buy it We're going to nip upstairs. We're going to nip to rough trade. <laughs> um, but I... Um, you know that. Why didn't you end up doing something in music? It never really crossed my mind to it, doing something in music. Never really crossed my mind, other than it was something that I enjoyed. Um, as a kind of somebody who seems to probably too much fill their spaces with something, it, that's another reason it's very important to a kind of somebody who's naturally proposed to fidget. Well, then music's something I always kind of want around me, and it wasn't actually until about ten years ago. Um, I thought maybe I'd quite like to work in music, but then I knew a lot of people who did, and I kind of looked at their lifestyles and who they were as people, and I thought this is, and also it's quite a willful person who tends to like, um, you know, can, uh, staying up till um, very late. I thought this is actually, if you know yourself at all, then this is not a good, potentially not a good idea. But you, so, but you, were, you did art school, didn't you? I went to art college. I had rather kind of unsuccessful kind of art career at school because um, I was quite disruptive. Um, I liked uh, from a, my art teacher really kind of t- took it again. He he had a real problem with me, and so it was a kind of slightly vicious circle where I kind of really dug in and was a pain in the neck. And so that I didn't kind of go to the art colleges I wanted to go to. I think I was kind of um, so it was all very frustrating, and I was very I had a um, I was kind of all over the place when I was young, and actually I think a big regret now is, is that I didn't work hard at school or at art college. And, and I do kind of more art now almost than I did then, and I feel if I, there's one thing I could rehab that time back and be very, very committed and study properly and really work hard, um, that's what I would go and, I would go and do again. I, I painted portraits for a while after I left art college, which I loved. Where did you go to art school? I went to the Byam Shaw. Okay. Um, I went to Bath to do my foundation course, which I absolutely loved. Um, then I went to the Byam Shaw, which sadly wasn't part of St. Martin's at the time, so I can't walk around saying I went to St. Martin's. 
Um, and then was a portrait painter for a while, but very kind of scatty, um, disorganized, um, kind of anxious um, kind of young man who, um, so it didn't kind of go that way. And I hopped around, I had a lot of interests and I kind of hopped around all over the place. And one day I kind of, I needed to impose discipline on myself. I thought that, you know, if I'm not going to go to the studio and, um, and be committed about this, I need to impose discipline on myself. I spend more time thinking about things I can do to goats, so to speak, and octopuses. Yeah. Um, so I went to Alistair Little on, um, uh, he just opened on Langster Road, said, um, I'll shut up and do what I'm told. And he said, that may be the case, but um, I want to see that you're more committed. So come back in a year's time. So I went and worked at the Halcyon. I then went back to Alistair Little and he said, all right, you've got a job. And he was very important to me because he's kind of international grandmother cooking style that he is, and also in a kitchen where everybody was encouraged to do everything. He completely blew my mind open, and I thought, you know, I like provincial. So, just let me take you take you back. So, you, you, for whatever reason, you hadn't, you, you were too scatty. You hadn't managed to get the portrait thing to work. But had you been interested in food before? I was always, and I grew up in a kind of family that. I mean, if you watch my family eat for a start, it's like kind of watching a kind of pack of hyenas tear apart a baby zebra. I mean, we kind of when the food's on the table, we're all kind of in there. Um, and my mum had the most extraordinary collection of cookbooks and she's one of those people who really doesn't see the need to shop. She'll look in an apparently scant cupboard or virtually empty fridge and she'll create something. My father, on the other hand, was very kind of operatic, but uh, would use every pan in the kitchen, but had kind of spent his life travelling around the world and eating in wonderful places. So both parents were brilliant cooks. And then, you know, when I couldn't get my hands on my brother and I as kind of young boys fighting over the Helmut Newton book, whenever I couldn't get the, the, that book, then I'd go and read my mum's cookbooks. And, really? And Very unusual for a, a child then, wasn't it? Well, I was, kind of, I was fascinated by food, absolutely fascinated. My mum, you know, I kind of started, uh, I'd kind of watch, and mum said, you know, I didn't know because I can't remember a lot of it, but she said, you were always riveted, you were totally unsqueamish anything that was put in front of you, you would just descend on. And I think to this day, there's nothing that I can memorably say that I ate, which I really didn't like. Um, your, dad, your, your dad was ambassador to Japan? Yes. Was that when yeah. you were young? Or when that you... was when I was, so I spent my first three years in Tokyo and then came back to Dorset with them. Okay, so, yeah. that, so that must have had some effect on the family and the way that you ate, because I mean, that, that was when, in the 1970s? 70s. I think what had more of an effect is as I grew up, my dad, apart from being kind of a very modern man, he was totally in love with the countryside. And in a funny kind of way, he divided everything into edible or non-edible. And so, and he told wonderful stories about the kind of the animals and, and he used to come through the door with huge, um, you know, kind of clutching shaggy ink caps in his hands or with cough, uh, you know, kind of slows in his pockets, which he'd make into cough mixture. And we grew up on a farm. We had a kitchen garden, very kind of lucky kids who also just wanted to play outside. So food was the outdoors, bought indoors. It was, everything was kind of about food in one way or another. We'd walk and get our milk in the evening and then walk back over the fields, my brother and I, and um, everything was kind of, kind of food. I, I was reading a piece earlier about um, the series that you made with Nathan Outlaw and, and I, one of the things that struck me was you were talking about his very happy kitchen. Yeah. He ran a really nice, you know, he could be bossy but he ran a really nice kitchen. Was, what was your impression of your first professional kitchen you My first in? professional kitchen was the Halcyon, which you remember, I'm sure, which yep. was on Holland Park. Yeah. And I completely, I kind of went in there and rather, I think I was a bit of kind of a thorn in in the side of the other people who'd worked there because they were very committed chefs, chefs trying to get a Michelin star. 
and this little upstart comes in and Martin Haddon, who was Nico's sous chef, who was the head chef there, very quickly realised that I kind of, I had ability and it kind of slightly put a few kind of noses out of joint, but I didn't like that rigorous system. I didn't really care about whether we got a Michelin star or not. I worked hard and I was underground all the time. And so that was my first experience, which was, um, and I was behaving very madly at the time in my own time. But and then you go to Alistair, who's somebody who's very kind of sharing, and he goes, why do you want to make it that way? You don't need to do that. Or, you know, you just put it in all at the same time. It looks like horrible for a while, but then it'll all look really nice later. But he, he was just brilliant, and his knowledge was brilliant. He told you stories. You weren't kept on a section. It's like, you want to have a go at that, have a go at that, but just listen really to it. Really interesting. So yeah. it was a shared kitchen, and you learnt really, really quickly. And I never responded well to kind of hierarchy, really. So it was a much better kitchen for me to work in. Do you think that, that Alistair Little rec recognised... Did he kind of think... Did he take you under his wing as, as, uh, well, a, as a sort of maverick? Well, he wasn't there so much when I was there, um, but... It was certainly, he knew I'd kind of, I, I, I think, you know, we, we all knew I was in the place where I really, in, in the best environment for yeah. me to cook. Yeah. And did that make you, I mean, you, you've been hinting at kind of being a bit nutty. Did that, did that calm you down? It did. It made me work hard and it was work that I could actually apply myself to and, and I liked. But, you know, when, you know, my father died when I was very young and it, I, I think it kind of, um, when I was 24, but it kind of, it was a very sad part of my life where I just was kind of, I you know, was running around, you know, kind of staying up too late and just trying to kind of ignore it, I think. And your um, school, and your school, I mean, you're at Beedales, which is famously kind of, I imagine, designed for people like you, creative people. Who no are a bit school maverick, is designed for people like me. Okay. Um, school for me was something to be left as min the minute it had been started was something to be got through. It was an endurance test. Well, they, but they, so, and they did not manage to engage you They at didn't all. manage to engage me except for art, which, as I say, was a real struggle for mm. me, which is a real shame because it was one of the things that I was really good at. Um, but at, but at school, you know, food there too. I was poaching the local trout farm. In fact, I think there's still a tree saying um, Valentine Warner and Mark Plum, 301 plus trout between um, 1985 and 1990. Brilliant. So we were poaching. I had an air rifle, which I hid in a um, fertilizer what, bag. You kept in the ground. an air rifle Yeah, at and school. I used to go and shoot the kind of <laughs> rabbits and then kind of cook them, up, cook them up in the sixth form kitchens and stuff. So it was, um, you know, which was better than school food. And yeah. do you think, that, that's absolutely amazing, do you think that the countryside kind of calmed you down when you moved back from Japan? And I mean, so you went, it, it's, it's odd because for me, and I have a profound relationship with the countryside, and, and which I've slightly lost now, when I was young it used to make me very calm and centred and I didn't really actually need anything else, mm. I don't think. Um, d that didn't really work for you, although you were living in this amazing place in this farm and the very great thing about my parents is they exposed me to so much and i, I don't know how to sorry it's going to be a very long-winded answer which no, i'll cut good. short but i very quickly you know just very by nature um by design by color by pattern by um architecture by nature is superior to everything we copy it in everything we do and it's um and in the, you know, it's immensely important to me. It, it's a balance. I love the city and I love the countryside, but I never pine for the city, but I certainly pine for the countryside. Um, to kind of walk in play, it, it's kind of, it's our most natural state. It, it's constantly stunning. It provides me with a lot of the things I like to do. I can, 
I can eat freely from nature. Um, you know, there's lots of wonderful things we can use. And I think that the problem, the big problem I have today is that uh, while I enjoy so much of what's around me, is that, you know, there's this kind of, we've got to this terrible point where there could be nothing clearer than nature can sure as hell survive without us being here. But it certainly can't be said the other way around. Mm. Yet we continue to um, just rape it and rinse it out in a way that's quite unbelievable. And I find it fascinating that you walk into anyone's house and there's a, a cushion with a deer on it and their wooden, their cooking spoons in the shape of a peacock and they've got little cups with mushroom, whatever it is, our houses are full of nature at references. And yet it's something that we appear to not care about whatsoever. So it's a very kind of heartening to know that people like caught by the river, you know, the things that you say, oh, nature writing is absolutely kind of yes. you know, really peaking. And, um, but, you know, I, I find it wonderful to be, you know, walking up at the distillery or, or fishing, or it gives, it, it makes me really, really happy. Well, as you know, that, that's a big part of what we try to do with The Good Life, is yeah. connect, I think, particularly and specifically children with the great outdoors. And, um, you know, my strong theory is that they go completely bonkers simply doing the most simple things. I mean, yeah. they can climb trees and stuff, but it's mainly the rolling down the hill stuff and getting muddy. And if they were allowed to do that every day, there simply wouldn't be any fighting in the streets if kid could, kids the could The countryside is full of stories. Children like stories. The best way to teach children is with stories, not a kind of a list of facts. And if you put children in nature, it's full of stories. All the wonderful books that kids read are about nature. And I've used to teach for um, Jamie Oliver's foundation for about five years. And when we first went there, it was kind of, you know, you walked in and sure enough, there were some, you know, guys in there and they looked kind of troubled and their hoods were up, their feet were on the table. They were like, who is this guy with a plummy voice again? And the minute I took in, took the box off some kind of live crayfish or said, here's some rabbits, skin them. Um, then they were completely in and then they were all going, you know, I'm not going to eat that. And two hours later, they're all sitting down to a plate of rabbit going, oh, I can't believe we've done this. And so to this thing called Root Camp, which um, I've had some, you know, worked with, you know, the, all these kids from very different backgrounds, extreme different ends, turn up in a place where their phone doesn't work, not because the phones are taken away and we take them away every year and they cook and they're all friends and walking around and by the end of it they can't believe they've had such so an amazing what experience. Is, what is Root? I, mean, I, I mean I hear what it, what it is but who, whose project is it? Who, it's who? run by a woman called Cassia Kidron and the idea is to take teenagers out into nature where they camp and then one group will go away and you know go fishing or be taught about the hedgerows or carve a wooden spoon while the other group cooks. Um, and then they come back and eat the lunch, and then the group at Cooks, they go out and have the afternoon course, and then they all come back and have this big dinner together. It lasts for a week, and the most extraordinary friendships are made at this thing, and they, you know, they're all kind of saying, kind of sobbing and saying, I don't want to leave, and I love the fact that kind of private schools and state schools are mixed, and you think, my God, you know, is this going to be difficult? And it just, everything melts away. Is that away. right? What, yeah. so, so, and the private school kids pay and... Everyone is really joined up, making stones. very, very kind of, you know, strong relationships. And it just kind of goes to prove you couldn't impose all these kind of worries and anxieties and ideas of what will and won't work. But actually, you kind of use nature as a kind of a background for this and give them a great time and tell them stories and engage them. And all of that crap goes away. So your, you know, your most recent career, and I know you say you're now going, you know, into booze from um, food, is obviously you've, you've been a real um, evangelical um, outdoor cooking guy. Um, 
How, how was that kind of taking all these interests and putting them into a commercial format in that, you know, you're working with people who are really essentially trying to make money out of you? How did that... Well, that's probably sit? why I did so badly out of it, because... Well, no, I didn't do badly. It's been wonderful. Let me get that straight. It's been wonderful opportunities and has really helped me and opened up all sorts of doors. You know, did I... Did I financially do well out of it? No, because I was green and I wasn't paying attention and there's a lot cleverer people out there than me. But I think, you know, I owe it all to a woman called Pat Llewellyn who put the two fat ladies together. She did all of Gordon. She found Jamie and did, you know, the Naked Chef with him. She was the producer talking on that programme. She's very, very clever. And I don't know how we got together, but she said, someone's told me to see you. And we both forgot who the contact was. And so we did a screen test and she said, you're odd and I don't know what to do with you, but keep in touch. So I did. And then we did four, three or four screen tests. And she said, Val, you're really odd. And I think there's something, but how are we going to take this forward? So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll come and work. I kind of um, had a little kind of dispute and I was um, kind of wondering what to do next. And so I said, I'll come and work for you and I will help research your programmes, but on the grounds that you helped me research a programme that we do together, and we got commissioned in a month, and that was wow. really... Um, and, and it did really well. It did. Um, it did. I just wished again, you know, everything come very late in my life. I wish I'd just been paying attention a little bit more. And, um, and, but the books did well as well, did they? The or? books did well, and... Um, I mean, it's hard to get a book to do well, I think. I mean, that was my, my only ever had one book published and commercially it was a complete yeah. disaster. I mean, I'm happy with that because I loved doing the book and having the book. But I mean, yours did well. That's no mean feat. It's a fiercely competitive Well, I, I wrote world. kind of four and enjoyed all of them. I just think like everything, it's kind of, um, everything I seem to do, I then kind of, a few years later go, ah, I get it now. And then would like to be given another chance, but you can't sit around um, you know, kind of hoping it telly will come back. Fool, fool would be the man. But I'd love now, love to go and say, actually, I am prepared to do this, but I'm not prepared to do that. And you know, can I? Can, can and why I do, aren't can you? I do, why aren't you doing that? Because you, you just, you're just. I mean, are you constantly moving? Because you're well, too I'm much moving. I'm kind of spread. Spirit. You know, I do. I'm doing quite a lot of different things at the moment. And you know, the way you've got to write stuff and send it in, and they say this is interesting. And I think you know, sometimes you've got to. Uh, I've spent too long trying to do. Uh, sometimes doing too many different things at the same time and Heppel's very important and it needs concentration and my consultancy jobs need concentration in order that I deliver a good job for being paid for them so sometimes that barges other things out the way. But what, what are your consultancy jobs? What, what, well what I'm do you do? kind of working for, a, I'm working for a beer company, I go and work for you know food brands who say um, you know how do we make this biscuit nicer or whatever so you know. Is that fun? Job. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love picking holes in things, and then I like hopefully coming up with a constructive um, uh, solution to them. Being being a, a um, consultant, I always think is a bit like being a grandparent because you can kind of you don't you can hand the the actual baby back to the parents, and I mean it is it is a pleasurable thing to do because you can be really outspoken. Yeah. And I mean, hope you know, hopefully, you providing you're listening to people. <laughs> yes, but, but yeah. I mean, I when I do my consultancy for people, I I, I always take it upon myself to be you know, obviously polite, but as antagonistic as I can be, because mm. I think that, and so in other words, I'm not necessarily treating it as if it was my own yeah. brand, where yeah. I, I may be quite pissed off if people were that antagonistic. Well, I think it's probably quite important that you don't treat it as your own brand, because it's not, and ultimately their vision is to kind of deliver something that's within their, 
that you know you're kind of a hopefully a you know problem solver every now and again or you know and I get you know um, yeah that kind yes of thing. yeah no yeah. really but, but you're not specifically working in the area of kind of wild food and no um, I've actually seemed to be moving kind of said earlier with you know I'm I'm working for a pretty major beer company but that's not I'm doing kind of food matchings with their beers and um, which you know I very very much enjoy so there's real yeah. depth to what you're doing and they're really investing in you and taking it seriously. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's good. Yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And then writing, which I'd love to, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to tell you what I'm writing, but until we know that it's 100% off the ground, but I'm going to, I am going to do another cookbook, but it's a, it's a real, it's quite a macabre little oddity. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How, <laughs> how interesting. Um, and and um, I, I want to come on to Heppel in a moment, but the one thing which always strikes me about you is that you're, that you're 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 funny. You're very humorous, and that doesn't necessarily seem to come across unless you listen to you live. I mean, I don't think that that comes across in your books particularly. I don't. I well, I think uh, you're not letting your character out. Do I don't. Think? I think I'd make lot. I think I'd make lots of terrible television programs if I made them myself. But but quite often the things that I've wanted, I found funny, or you know, I would normally end up on the edit floor. And the things that the television company find funny, I kind of wince and kind of bite my knuckles. So, you know, e editing never kind of helps. The books, I, 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 I think they've got moments of... I think my cookbooks I'd describe more as a kind of collection of stories rather than recipes. Yes. Because it's really the introductions I like writing more than... You know, yeah. Again, don't take this the wrong way, but more than the recipes no, no, themselves. I, I think I, food is so much more about a plate of food. Well, I, I think um, you can apply that to any successful cookbook. Yeah. That it isn't actually the, the actual recipes, really, that, that lure people in. It's, it's something around that. But, I mean, I just, I'm just thinking back to when Tara, my um, third child went out with you last year to make a little video just before the good life experience and she came back and she said he was just fucking funny the whole way through and um and and and, and then i started kind of looking out for that and i realized that that was the case and i, I you know it is it is interesting i i don't know i'm not saying it's interesting that no one's made a, a comedy cookery series of course because that's just so out there but it, it isn't, it, I think maybe... Well, I I've been I'm actually funny you say that, but I've been trying to, I mean, one thing I'd really like to do is make a, I don't know if you remember, what was it called, banana splits? That, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd kind of, of like to do a banana splits um, for food, maybe not even for kids, but, you know, I kind of want to take things out of the norm, but getting those projects off the ground is, you know, is quite a kind of tall order. But Why? Because the because, all because it doesn't so fit in. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't fit in, yeah. or it doesn't go to a tried and tested popular programme or something, but... You know, life is funny. There's enough reasons to feel down from one day to another, so why concentrate on those? I like talking to people. Other people make me laugh um, a lot. And surely, you know, if you're going to inevitably come across the difficulties in life, then I think it should be as fun and um, as possible in the gaps in between. Um, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think perhaps when you're saying, you know, if with the benefit of hindsight, I would have done my career differently... It's interesting to know, I think, whether it's interesting to ask whether as we grow up and get wiser, we realise that our best asset is just our character and that we don't necessarily have to fit into a little box as defined by a... Well, I don't company. think, you know, I think in a way that's made it life quite slightly difficult to me. I don't, you know, I kind of, you know, as Pat said to me, you're, you're weird and I don't know what to do with you. And I think, uh, you know, boxes that people have wanted to put me in, I think it have, have been quite... Um, I've wrestled against them and I, I don't know, I don't really know where I fit in, I don't even know to this day.
Well, I think the conversation's been going pretty well so far, and we seem to have covered um, a myriad of different subjects. But I wanted to uh, talk to Val about his gin business, uh, Heppel Gin, uh, a company that he established with um, some friends a few years ago. I think this is interesting not only because gin is essentially an interesting subject at the moment, but also because Val's had the guts to create uh, a small business, and I'm really fascinated by small businesses. And so Heppel is your gin, and, and it, it's, it was founded by your old school friend Walter, who is a sort of finance guy. Yeah. And you, and one other, is that right? No, two others. There was Walter and I were... Um, Walter's kind of my oldest friend, and... Um, we just kind of went out for dinner one night and we were scratching our heads going, you know, shifting sounds and what are we both doing? And um, we started talking about Heppel, which is the kind of, it, it, it's a name that's really been applied to the house and the wider area around Which it. is where, he, where Walter lives. Up in the wilds of Northumberland, where Walter kind of prefers to be. He hates coming to London, really. He only does it because he has to. And... And we just suddenly, re- I just kind of said to him, you know, we've talked about putting cabins, you know, all those kind of usual things. And you've got uh, a hills covered in kind of twisted juniper trees. You've got these empty barns that nothing goes in on them except for kind of owls um, murdering mice. And you've got herbs all over the mountains and you've got this incredible water source. And, you know, maybe a distillery is the right thing. At the same time, I was working with this, this brilliant barman, don't know if you know, Nick Strangeway, who's probably one of the world's top 20 kind of, you know, barmen. And, um, and I just had a hunch. I carry, I'm, I'm good at hunches, and I'm good at connect, connecting things together. I kind of seem to... If, if something comes up, I remember something that maybe even happened all the way back then or somebody I met just for a drink who I didn't really know, but I kind of remember at the right time, and I just said, let's... You've got to meet these guys. So Nick came up with Carebury. Carebury is a um, biochemist. He's I've met Carebury, yes. And um, and I, we kind of very quickly said, let, you know, over, you know, kind of clinking ice and crackling fires and lots of walking and um, this very kind of di- disparate, you know, kind of, you know, tattoos and Wellington boots, you know, kind of mix up of people just said, right, you know, it's all here. Um, then we all said, should we make a gin? And everyone shouted no at the same time. But then Nick and I very much thought it with so much gin around. But this was, I mean, the gin for, thing has increased, you know, dramatically since you started, mm. it, right? What, well, no, before, ago? I mean, we were literally the last, we started four years ago, but we were the last ones coming to the party. And Nick kind of rightly said, you know, gin is becoming so much about cardamom or they're being flavoured. And really, gin is about juniper, and we've got all this juniper on the hillside. And, um, and then Carberry said, well, if you two want to make this very kind of intricate drink, you can't do it using a copper pot still. Let's go and have a look at supercritical CO2 extraction or rotary evaporation or ultrasonic disruption. But that's how we're going to do it. That's what will make our company interesting. And also by using unripe juniper to kind of... I like the idea of, you know, all gin is made with um, mature juniper. Right. So the other idea is that if we pick the berries green and mix them with mature juniper, then our gin would be more of a kind of the whole life of the juniper. And that, was your, that was your idea. Nick and I, and, you know, let's get the teenagers in the bottle rather than, you know, a bottle of gin being a kind of coach load of elderly. Let's make it a kind of car trip. But it is only trip. young people that are drinking it. I mean, if you have children of, of my children's age, kind of between 28 and 18, or maybe even younger, I mean, um, they, they are the ones that are, Hoovering gin, aren't they? Well, your kids hoovering gin. Yeah, in a big way. I mean, I, I was alerted to this. Um, actually, I think it was four years ago, this 
September, we had a party, which was a sort of 25th wedding anniversary party and a 50th birthday for me and Caroline and all the rest of it. And I, I went, you know, to the wine spirit merchant or whatever and bought kind of 10 bottles of gin, thinking that'll yeah. last the weekend because no one really drinks gin. And, and I was back there was after gone. the first morning because it was a two-night party. And, 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 I sudden, and then I realised of something on. And now, um, if we have that age group around us and drinking is going on, which we always do and there always it's is, gin is. It's gin, yeah. Well, I mean, we, you know, with such a clustered market, I mean, thankfully to kind of Carebury and, you know, the way we did it, I think that there's enough talking points about Heppel gin to stand out from, you know, to stand out from this huge crowd, but I'm very keen that we move into a more kind of acrobatic and inventive other products which are outside category. So we've got a very exciting kind of um, pine needle drink coming out at, um, very soon. Non-alcoholic or alcoholic? Non-alcoholic, and that's really where I want to go. I mean, you know, we've, 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 we've made a category white spirit well. It's been well received, but I'm very keen that we now go and look at all the, the slightly more odd ideas that we had. Because you know, presumably the, the wind of change will blow through gin and it won't be well, it will. in a few years. And time. hopefully our, our pine thing will be standing yeah. there at the, you know, yeah. at the right time. So has this involved substantial in investment? What does it cost to set up a gin distillery? It's, we thought we were being really clever by setting up for you know, very little. But that comes with its it comes with its it, it comes with its issues. So you know, Walter's been amazingly clever um, about kind of guiding the company through on a shoestring. I mean, it Just, sounds to um, me like you are the perfect combination mm. because I think that every great business in my opinion, beyond hard work, just needs two things, which is creativity and, and business brains. Mm. And, and one is no good without the other. Mm. Um, and and um, it sounds like you've kind of, you've, you've struck on that. I mean, do you see this as a, as, as a, I mean, is your aim to build a really big company or like a... I don't, I, well, again, it kind of goes back to nature. You, you know, Heppel is a certain size. As our company grows, we will lean on, you know, I kind of rather, you know, tritely kind of say that Mother Nature is our business partner. But as we kind of lean on her more as the distillery grows, there has to be a time where you think, hold on a minute, everybody. We've either got to start thinking about where we're sourcing our stuff from. But if it's got to come off this place, we've got to stop now yes. because we can't get bigger than this because otherwise it's detrimental to the environment that's actually been looking after us. I want to kind of look at other drinks partly because that's the inventive company we want to be but partly because it's not a gin company solely and Heppel can only be so big anyway because otherwise you know Walter's you know this place it's a magical land there we're in the middle of national parks we can't just go on taking what no, we want no. so at a certain x thousand cases which was a long way from where we are now we will have to say, okay, well, that's enough for that, here. That's enough for but, here. But I, and I completely um, agree with that. But but my, I suppose my question is, your presumably your principles aren't that it has to be massively local to Heppel, the the sourcing of the ingredients. No, well, juniper is very very interesting because yeah, juniper tastes totally different according to where it's picked. If you pick Italian juniper, Macedonian juniper, Croatian juniper, Norwegian juniper. They all grow in very different climates. And so the minute you say, right, well, Heppel Gin actually wants, we need 10 billion times more green juniper. We know that we can't get that from Croatia or Macedonia mm. because we're up in the kind of, you know, the kind of, the, you know, the kind of hair, you know, the hair cutter that is that top northerly bit. So we would have to get our green juniper from Norway. So it's slight, it's quite complicated because... Yeah. All junipers taste different, and actually, the reason we have three—the Italian 
because we like it because it's very sugary. The Macedonian we like because it's got those very deep kind of woody fragrances. The green juniper, we like it for its kind of youth and freshness. So it, it's not as simple as saying, well, let's just get some more juniper because which one and where from? Yes, so, yeah, um, no, no, I, absolutely fascinating. So um, tell me what, so what, what am I going to ask now? Let's just think about this here. Um, yeah, I, I suppose the the two I, I, there are two more things that I'd really like to to folk, to sort of talk about a little bit is um, fishing. So fishing. You're, you're a mad keen fisherman. Born to as my paperweight says, born to fish, forced to work. And <laughs> I'm the minute uh, I, I mean, Dad uh, took I, the first line I ever dropped was through the um, the seawall at um, at Lyme Regis or West Bay. I can't remember. And you know, catching rockling, and you know, like all, all. I think boys want to destroy the world, so they know how to put it back together. But of course, we killed bloody everything. And Dad said, "Well, you killed it now. You cook it." So it was the kind of those little rocklings or um, things that used to get back. And then we went to America. We used to go to these kind of dude ranches on holiday, where we'd ride and you know, kind of shoot bottles and all of that kind of you know. And I didn't really like riding. Horses don't like me. I'd love to be good on a horse, Same but here. I'm never going to look yeah. sexy on a horse. Yeah. And um, so I had a horrible experience being dragged through a wood with my foot in a stirrup, with my head bumping along the ground. And I thought, that that is it. And But we were there for another two weeks. And so this old cowboy called John Stone um, took me off to the Blackfoot River and taught me how to fly fish. And it was it was instant love. And the idea, I, all fishing, I love. I've got, always got a rod in the car. But fly fishing, the idea of kind of tricking something with cotton and feathers and stuff, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. But and it's, it's endlessly. You can't get to the bottom of it. And you walk into a shop. I've got more flies than I need. I, I lie in the bath, regimenting my flies, and it, it's a, it's obsessional. But um, but what's interesting is that in many ways fly fishing is the antithesis of your character. I mean, this kind of restless, anxious, sort of, you know, always wanting to think about the next thing. I mean, fly fishing requires, doesn't it, sort of almost zen-like calm and commitment But that's what it gives me. So there is a discipline that allows me to do that. And it's second nature. I don't think when I'm doing it, it's kind of... But also for the fidget in me, fly fishing's great because you're not kind of sitting on the edge of a riverbank kind of hunched like a cormorant with a lap full of maggots in the rain you're you're moving all the time so you're walking up the river you're casting it requires a lot of movement and you also need me. to understand i think which is really interesting for me you need to understand the fish don't you or you're just wasting your time you or know not when you walk along a river you look there's a kind of tree that goes like that or there's a bend with a deep hole or there's a little tussock sticking out or a bramble hedge which you can't get your bait underneath and or fly, or and you know that though you just you look at a river and you go that there's fish there, not in that bit. I know they're not there, but I know they're there, and it's and that's also lovely to learn a river, to kind of to learn a few places that you go and you know really really well. That that's really kind of yeah. um, it's very rewarding. I had that um, when I was a teenager actually, and and I had it almost to a point where I thought I had some weird supernatural talent, and I've completely lost it. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, because I, I used to spend hours walking up a river in Scotland and actually just dropping in a worm when I was young, and I could almost you know guarantee that. When I when I knew there was something, I could almost guarantee I'd catch yeah. it. Yeah. But now I can't do it. It's really weird. It'll come back. Do you think it will? Yeah. I'm not sure I'm patient enough. Um, but so and, and then, also, why well, you've got to stop insisting that there's trout in your lake? And there aren't. Yeah. They. No, I know. <laughs> Actually, funnily enough, 
I, after you did that, I think that the trout there have been... Um, I think it's been... It's been eaten out by carp or something. Or, or, or some um, enthusiastic teenagers. Yes, from enthusiastic the, uh, teenagers, yeah. I think. So the, 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 um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you is, is what in the world you would recommend to people and what's exciting you at the moment? I mean, records, books cooking methods, restaurants? I think the, re the restaurant, oh God, I mean, wow. I mean, there's, there's an enormous, there's an, in God, what a question. Just something that you, you know, you'd say go to this or read this or listen to this. I've just, well, I've, well, I please, you know, it's awful to be asked that question and deliver a half answer, but there's, I don't know, I can't remember then, maybe we can look it up. Um, but there is an, a French travel writer um, who called Sylvain, I, I don't know his, and he basically, here's somebody rather like me who, um, who goes, you know, why is there 63 types of tomato ketchup? This is exhausting. Um, why do we need so much choice? And he, and he did, um, actually, I'm so contradictory, you know, how can you say, uh, complain about choice and then make, make gin? gin? But, yeah. you know, God, I'm full <laughs> of all it. It's alright. Um, but, um, uh, he basically said that it had long been a desire of his to, um, go and really understand what it was to be isolated and to um, deal with the mind as, as you know, this experiment went on. So he goes off to live on the edge of Lake Baikal for six months through the middle of winter. His closest neighbour is through the snow and the wind 19 miles away with no transport to get there. And he takes uh, lots of books, lots of classics and lots of philosophy and stuff and he sits in this cabin which is really, I think from the way he writes, no bigger than the room we're sitting in. And he lives on the edge of Lake Baikal with the wind howling outside and he starts to kind of record his mind and what is going on. And he has these real lots of wrestling going on and he talks a whole chapter on, you know, kind of just watching the dust come through the window and how it's important to think about the dust moving around in beams of light. He falls in love with a, with a willow tip that comes or something like that that comes to the... And it's just, it's very, very funny. And then he gets bored and you know he's getting cabin fever so he'll trump off to... Um, meet a Russian who'll be hitting a kind of uh, a frozen fish with a hammer in the kitchen and saying, you know, you live longer if you don't talk um, too much. Kind of, and, and it's uh, okay. And well, we'll, it, we'll, we'll it's find wonderful, it. and it's Brilliant. called Constellations of the Forest. And I think Constellations. Constellations of the Constellations. Forest. It was given to me by the guy who owns Pick You, actually, um, and Jamie Berger, who said you'll like this vowel, and he was dead right. And it's one of the best bits of nature writing I think I've ever read. Well, thank you very much, Valentine, for, for that, for giving us your time. Um, I thought that was um, a good conversation, and I hope that you did too. Um, I will be back soon. There's not much else to tell you, except um, that the book that Val mentioned is by Sylvan Tesson, T-E-S-S-O-N, and it's called The Constellation of the Forest. Um, I've actually just ordered a copy from um, my local bookseller in London and um, uh, it looks really wonderful. I found a great review of it on The Guardian. Uh, after the talk, um, I took Valentine to Rough Trade Records next door to our office um, because I always like to try and buy the guests a present. And I bought him um, a new compilation of three records um, by Max Richter, which is part of the Behind the Counter series for Rough Trade. Um, I actually really recommend that if you're looking for um, a good take on sort of modern classical music. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, for me, it's quite out there in terms of my normal listening, but I've been enjoying it, so I thought that Val would too. Anyway, 
That's all for this time, and um, I very, very much look forward to welcoming you aboard the Mavericks podcast another time soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>